hello, this is Jane Gunn, the Corporate Peacemaker, and this podcast is all about how we can each use the skills and tools of conflict resolution and mediation to help us in our everyday lives, both at work and at home. So today I'm speaking with Jack Levin, who's a litigation partner in Covington and Burling in New York. Uh, Jack's also a commercial mediator and an arbitrator. So Jack, um, hello and welcome. Good day. Thank you, Jane. So, Jack, start by telling us a little bit about your yourself as a litigator and your introduction to mediation and arbitration. I've been practicing law in New York City for about 38 years, and uh, uh, for all of that time, I've been a commercial litigator with large law firms, uh, especially serving the financial services industries. And uh, probably about a dozen or so years ago, uh, I became increasingly aware of the fact that most commercial cases settle. Uh, they settle at odd and unpredictable times and that the, uh, the, the, the process of resolution is, uh, is one that people have no control over or particular concern about. Mm. Indeed, the idea of, quote, settling a case seemed to be a, a weakness. Uh, in any event, I became aware that the federal court in New York City was offering a course in mediation, which I took, and then I was appointed to the a mediation panel of that court, uh, and then ultimately of the commercial division court of the state court system in New York, and did pro bono work there for a number of years. And then more recently decided to make uh, mediation and arbitration um, something I would focus on as a neutral. I've had a lot of experience as an advocate in arbitration as well as in litigation. Uh, so I've now become members of many of the important panels um, in the United States, and I'm a fellow of the Trident Institute of Arbitrators in, in London, and I'm now devoting myself to this mostly full-time, and I hope to have this be what some people are now calling an encore career. My mother's 96, and so I, I hope this will go on at least 30 more years. <laughs> That's fantastic, Jack. Um, and, um, when we talked uh, yesterday, you were telling me about the uh, what you described as a profound impact that your mediation training had had on you, in particular in how you manage other relationships, so those at work and those at home as well. Well, I think that if one trains to become a reasonable person who will help other people resolve their disputes, um, and, and one is conscious of that, which I think most mediators are, then then. It's, it's impossible not to, to try, at least, to have the things you've learned apply to your own life. And so we all have family relationships, and family relationships tend to be the most intractable. Uh, and so I've tried in dealing with members of my family to understand um, their interests, wants, and needs, as well as my own, to uh, perhaps moderate my tone, listen better, um, uh, try to keep my eye on the ball and what, what's really what's really bothering people. And it's not a question of solving a particular problem necessary, necessarily, but in an ongoing relationship, to keep these things in mind, to, to elevate the quality of the relationship because it's one I care about. Yeah. Um, and while in commerce, sometimes you have disputes where people just don't care about the relationship anymore, more often than not, uh, in commercial relationships, people need to fix a relationship or it's in their interest to resume it. So all of these things, to me, go together. 
So, uh, Jack, you, talk, you talked there about the need to, to listen um, uh, and how important listening is and also establishing the wants and needs. And I, and I think also you, you told me a story about something recently that happened with your, with your mother. Is that something you'd like to share with us? Yes, it was very interesting. As I said earlier, my mother's 96. However, even at that advanced age, she's very fortunate to be in good health and she lives alone and manages all her own affairs in New York City. She recently asked me to open a joint checking account with her um, so that I could make some payments for her in the event she couldn't. And uh, it turned out that the checks uh, went to my address, and the checks themselves had not only our names on them, but my home address. And she was extremely agitated about this, um, even though it was something we could fix. It. And uh, uh, I didn't understand why she was so upset. And she said, I live here. I intend to keep living here. I don't want people to think I don't live here anymore. I don't live in a nursing home. And I realized that, that the address on the checks was a very critical signal to her and perhaps to other people that she'd lost her independence, mm. um, which is something which at her age she reasonably fears. Mm. Um, so I treated the change of the address on the checks is not just an administrative action, but is something very important to her emotional well-being. And more than that, she thought for a moment that I had intended to use my address, which I had to dissuade her of because she needed to know that I didn't intend uh, that she live at a different address and that I appreciate the importance of her, of her continued dependence. So there's an example of something very simple, the importance of which I wouldn't have understood had I not engaged her in conversation. And I think that listening is sometimes not just a matter of listening and understanding, but giving somebody else a chance to express their emotions. We might say vent, but venting sounds somewhat negative. Um, people will make themselves clear when they're articulate about how they feel. And what you describe there, Jack, is, is being able to discover the real issue because we all make assumptions about what we think the issue is and your assumption about what the issue was for your mother may have been very different from actually her deep-seated fear of, of, of losing her independence. Right. Our sense of priority of what's important can be uh, quite different from person to person. And, it, it, and the idea is not to change a person's priorities necessarily, but to understand it so you can find the solution. Yes, uh, and how legitimate people's fears and concerns are, because sometimes in family relationships, our temptation is to is just to say, oh, oh don't be silly and let's just carry on. Um, well, that's right. Mm. And in the commercial world, of course, um, one seems to have more of a right to say, well, don't be silly, let's carry on. But the problem is that, especially at the highest levels in a particular company, there is behavior that is as uh, uh, unusual uh and perhaps uh, disproportionate, as we may find in families. And sometimes those people are hard to control, so their motives yeah. just need to be honored yeah. and their needs met in order to resolve the controversy. And this is the thing that's increasingly struck me, Jack, is how similar, in a way, um, managing family relationships are with relationships at work. I mean, we, we, the only people we get to choose are our friends. We don't get to choose our family members and we don't get to choose our work colleagues. And yet those are the people that we spend most time with. Well, that's right. And, you know, I, I, in addition to my commercial work, I've taken some courses in family therapy and family uh, relationships. And, you know, one of the things they teach you is to do what are called genograms, which are symbolic 
diagrams in which you show who's who in the family and what the relationships are. And they can be very detailed, including showing who has addictions, etc. But, you know, you can take a genogram concept and apply it to a workplace. And, you know, just as we talk about dotted line relationships, you can um, understand the dynamic of interaction in the workplace as if it were a family. Mm. Um, and it can be as uh, quirky as families are, and uh, but equally important to understand. Yeah, and that and that makes a lot of sense to me with with the work that I do in corporations and the complex relationships that that I see needing to be unravelled. Yeah, I was just saying that I think in corporations that what what you can do more effectively is you can appeal to what people should do because people have job descriptions. Um, their place in the corporation is not necessarily uh, permanent, uh, and indeed, in the resolution of controversies uh, in the commercial setting, um, there's a risk to certain people that the resolution of the controversy, whether it goes well or badly, may affect their future in the company, whereas in a family, you're always going to be part of the family, although you may fare worse if the controversy isn't resolved well. Yes, that, that's true. And I often find that people have uh, a deep-seated desire in corporations not to rock the boat or not to put their head on the block. So in other words, in expressing their fears and concerns, as your mother was able to do, they don't feel they have a way to do that safely. Right. Well, also in corporations, you have the advantage sometimes of resolving the dispute by bringing in some third person yes. who was not directly involved in the events that gave rise to the dispute, yes. uh, which is rarely the case in the family. You need the person who who who, who is really in contention. Um, but but I think there are many parallels, and uh, the idea is always to remember that behind any dispute there is a person. Absolutely, yes. It's it's the it's the humanity or the human level of the dispute uh, or the issues which matter most. So, Jack, what, what tips would you give to uh, our listeners today on how to use the skills and tools or some of the skills and tools that you've learned as a mediator to better manage both their work and home relationships? Well, I think the first thing is to uh, not necessarily to listen harder or ask questions, but to maintain kind of a detached curiosity about what's happening. Um, um, obviously, if it's a relationship in which one is involved, the first thing one has to do is to calm down um, and to try to take a more aerial view of the situation without becoming completely detached because if it's an emotional involvement, you can't become completely unemotional. But when I say curiosity, I mean a position from which you are considering all possibilities. Um, both about what the other person believes and wants and also about yourself um, because the questions about other people's uh, needs, wants, and interests um, is, some, is a question that one, that one has to ask for oneself all the time. And even the mediator um, is subject to uh, the effects of a prolonged dispute if it's not being resolved because the mediator tends to define success by the resolution of the of the of the dispute, some disputes won't be resolved. So, um, just to keep listening, be curious about what's going on, um, and never to have a fixed view of the path on which resolution will be found. And sometimes, all you can find is the path. You won't actually get 
the people to the destination. Yeah. They, they may have to do that themselves at another time. I think that's a very helpful thought, Jack, because certainly as mediators, we sometimes feel responsible for the outcome uh, when, in fact, it's the party's responsibilities and not ours. I think that's right. And, uh, you know, mediators who are really in business, usually some of us do it pro bono, we tend to measure our success by the number of cases that are settled. Um, I personally, when asked what I specialize in, I say I specialize in high conflict resolution because... uh, I'm looking for the most intractable disputes, the ones where people are sitting with their arms crossed, hardly wanting to speak, and just being willing to be in the room or sometimes being compelled to do that by a court. And I want that because I think that's where I can personally be most effective. But if you take the, if you take the highest risk cases, just as if you're a physician, and you take the most difficult cases, um, you're going to have a higher mortality rate. Um, <laughs> you, you may not be as successful, yeah. but you accept that that what you've done perhaps is put people on a path or given them some tools by which to resolve controversies. And I've had a number of cases where we couldn't settle. Uh, people left the room amicably, and I got a call later that they had resolved it. Yes. And they thanked me. And so that, to me, is just as good as going in and wrapping it up in one day. Yeah. So setting people on the path to settlement rather than actually giving them the settlement on a, on a plate. So, Jack... Um, if you had one key thought to leave uh, listeners with today, wh- what would that be? Well, I would I would just say to be to be open to the fact that conflict is a necessary part of life. Um, you know, just as uh, you know, we can't be completely free of germs. I mean, you know, we have all sorts of pathogens in the air, and conflict uh, is part of society. So. Not to assume that conflict is bad, uh, that greater understanding can be achieved by engaging in conflict in, in a, uh, a positive way, um, and that it, it's how you manage it that's important, and not eliminating it or avoiding it, and that often you wind up with improved relationships if you, if you approach conflict in that way. Well, Jack, that's a great thought to end on. I I think I've learned a lot from you today, from your interview, and and thank you very much for your time. So thank you, Jack Levin. I appreciate it, Jane. Thanks so much.